So the video you just watched is from a study done at Yale University. And in the study, researchers showed babies a series of puppet shows. So each puppet show featured a helpful character and an unhelpful character, a good guy and a bad guy. And then the babies were asked to pick the, the toy or the, the guy they liked. Remarkably, 80% of babies preferred the good guy. The question is, why? Uh, why would such a high percentage of babies be naturally drawn to good characters in puppet shows? Is it because they have been taught very early by their parents to prefer good guys? Is it because it somehow as a species we have evolved to sort of prefer good guys? And what about the 20% of babies who pick the bad guy? Are these our future criminals? <laughs> Should we lock those babies up now, get them off the streets now while we're ahead? The study at Yale is actually a very interesting one that pertains to our topic for the morning, uh, the topic of morality, where it comes from, and if it offers any evidence for God. Uh, that's the next installment of our series, which is called Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith and Six Reasons I Won't. During the series, we're talking about the reasons that people have for believing in God or not. Uh, the non-believers, the skeptics in our lives, the people who don't believe in God, they're not all dummies. You know, they, they have good reasons for not believing. Now, of course, Christians have rebuttals or responses to those reasons. We also have more positive reasons for believing in God. And that's what we've been talking about during the second half of our series. Reasons to actually believe in, in God and Jesus as his son. Now, we have heard from you. Uh, we know this is a tough series to listen to. It's making us think. These, these are not necessarily topics that we get up thinking about early in the morning. Honestly, honestly, most Christians actually don't think that deeply about the reasons to believe in God. Uh, and a lot of Christians actually believe in G God and Jesus for maybe not so good reasons. Uh, maybe you believe because, you know, you just, you always have. You just grew up in church and your parents or your pastor told you to believe. Maybe you believe because, you know, peer pressure of your youth group. Maybe you believe in Jesus because you saw God's not dead, one, two, three, four, or ten. In fact, if I, if I asked you, if I asked you why you believe in God, do you know how you'd answer? What would you say? And if you explain that to like a friend or a non-believing friend, what, would it be persuasive to them? What would they think? They think, oh, wow, that's really compelling. Well said. Or they think, oh, that's, you're a Christian? Have you put a thought, any thought into this? Basically, there are good reasons to believe and there are bad reasons to believe. I read a book many years ago that one of my atheist acquaintances uh, gave me. I have an atheist acquaintance who's trying to like, evangelize me, convert me to atheism, show me the good news of you know, the futility of life and existence. <laughs> but the book is called 50 Reasons That People, believe for giving, uh, people Give for Believing in God. And it's written by a skeptic in, in which he points out that a lot of the reasons, he counts 50, that people give for believing in God are actually not good reasons. A lot of us have bad reasons for believing in God. And... Unfortunately, this doesn't help when we're out there trying to convince the world that God is real and that God loves them. Now, does this mean that there aren't good reasons for believing in God? Absolutely not. There are lots of good reasons to believe in God, and that's what we've been focusing in on during this half of the series, good reasons to believe. We talked about the design argument, for example. We talked about the cosmological argument. We talked about the argument from church history. And we're talking about these reasons so that you can have confidence in the truthfulness of Christianity and so you can have things to talk about with your friends. 
They're not going to pay attention. They shouldn't pay attention to our bad reasons for belief. They need to hear the best reasons that Christians have for believing. So, so even though you don't necessarily get up in the morning thinking about these things, they matter. They really do. Which brings us back to our reason for the morning. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about the moral argument for God's existence. The moral argument for God's existence is this. Our innate sense of right and wrong is best explained by a moral God who created us in his image. That's the moral argument. Our innate sense of right and wrong is best explained by a moral God who created us in his image. Now, this morning, let me walk you through the argument a little bit, uh, talk about some rebuttals, and then talk about some implications. First, the moral argument takes as its evidence the conviction that most human beings sense that certain behaviors are objectively right and or objectively wrong. I say objectively right or wrong because I'm not talking about feelings. I'm not talking about subjectively right or wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, every now and then we might feel like this is maybe possibly wrong subjectively. I'm saying that we actually sense that there are some things that are actually right or actually wrong. Uh, Philosophers call these things moral facts. So just like two plus two equals four, for example, murdering an innocent child for fun or at all is wrong. As wrong as is two plus two equals to five. That's wrong. So is like murdering an innocent child. Most people throughout the history of the world have believed in moral facts, that that some things really are wrong, some things really are, are right. Now, not every culture or individual agrees about what is right or wrong. But most people, at least, have believed in some sense of right and wrong. With me? Okay. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's take Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Most people around the world today would call Russia's invasion of Ukraine wrong. But wrong in what sense? Is it wrong because it feels wrong? Is it wrong because it violates international law or standards? Is it wrong because it's bad for the economy? Yes, all of that, but mostly we believe that this is wrong because it is objectively wrong to invade a foreign country that isn't doing anything to you and one filled with innocent civilians. It's objectively wrong, as wrong as is two plus two equals five. Or let me take a more positive example. Uh, This week, I got to do one of the coolest things a pastor gets to do. I got to watch an adoption take place. Got to watch the McEwans adopt Estelle into their family. It was was fantastic. Now, I had a sense as I was watching this take place, I had a sense, this is good. This this is good. This is right. But why? Is it good because it inspires us? Is it good because, you know, adoption is helpful for the species? Well, yes, but we also sense that it is good Because in some sense, adoption adheres to some moral principle in the universe that says compassion towards orphans is good. It's objectively good. We believe that it's a moral fact that compassion towards orphans is good. 
So most people have a sense of objective moral facts. We feel that, like the video showed. Even babies feel that. Here's the big question, though. The big question is, where does our belief in these objective moral facts come from? Where does our belief in these objective moral facts come from? This is where ethicists, philosophers, uh, psychologists, theologians go to work and disagree a lot. Where do we get the sense of right and wrong? That's the question. And to that question, experts offer three possible answers that I want to briefly share with you this morning. The first possible answer might be the oldest. God. For most of human history, people thought that the best explanation for our sense of moral duty was God. Most religions believe that God, or even the gods, are moral beings who define right and wrong in some way. Christians in particular believe that we were created in God's image and that we share certain parts of the divine character. So our consciences and hearts are our faint reflections of God's moral character, given that we were created by him to resemble him in some way. Now, of course, you know this, we've been corrupted by our own selfishness. But there are still echoes of God's righteousness in our brains. So in some sense, God has written the moral law of the universe onto our hearts. Paul the Apostle puts it like this. He says the requirements of the law, God's law, God's moral law, the requirements of the law are written on our hearts. And our thoughts sometimes accuse us and other times defend us. He's talking about the conscience. He says the conscience is sort of the, the, the gift of God. Uh, the moral gift of God that a moral God has given us. This has been our basic conviction for centuries, that we believe in morality because the universe was created by a moral God. Now, of course, skeptics do not accept this anymore. In more enlightened and modern times, people have offered more sophisticated explanations for where morality comes from. Specifically, skeptics offer two alternate sources of morality. First, some say that evolution is a better explanation of these feelings we have of right and wrong. Uh, many scientists argue that humanity evolved over tens of millions of years for the purpose of reproduction and that our moral impulses were part of that process. So our sense of morality developed along with our bodies, along with our brains to help us grow as a species. We evolved to think that murder is wrong, for example, because you know, not killing people actually benefits us. Uh, we evolved to think that incest is wrong, as another example, uh, because it protects the health and the integrity of our genetic offspring. These are just moral developments that just helped us as a species. Maybe you're familiar with the theory of evolution as a possible explanation for the development of right and wrong. Now, there is undoubtedly some truth to this theory. But it is not without problems. Here is a big one. You see, evolution works as species change so that they can reproduce more effectively and spread their DNA. According to the theory, our ethics evolve to aid that cause, to help spread the DNA of our species through reproduction. And yet, the behaviors that many cultures define as good and admirable actually undermine someone's ability to reproduce. I mean, what's the most noble type of behavior we can aspire to? Compassion for the weak and sacrificing yourself 
for others. We know this is the best type of good, living like Mother Teresa, sacrificing yourself to care for the weak. But if people lived like this, it wouldn't spread our DNA. The opposite sort of behavior would be better for reproduction. I mean, when it comes to evolution, the worse, the more selfish you behave, the more you reproduce. Take the Mongolian warlord Genghis Khan, for example, who lived in the 12th and 13th centuries. You know Genghis Khan? You might know Genghis Khan personally? Well, you actually might. You at least might know one of his descendants. Uh, People who study these things have identified Genghis Khan's DNA in huge swaths of modern humanity. One out of every 200 men alive in the world today is a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. How is that possible? You know. (laughs) Genghis Khan raped lots of women. Like, lots. That was his goal to reproduce. Here is actually a quote attributed to Genghis Khan. This is a quote. (laughs) You know what this is. It's a quote. The greatest joy for a man is to defeat his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all they possess, to see those they love in tears, to ride their horses, and to hold their wives and daughters in his arms. And he does not mean hold. We have a deep sense that this is wrong. Right? But by that behavior, Genghis Khan was actually a highly evolved human being. And by the standard, most of our moral heroes are actually Neanderthals, like Mother Teresa, or like Jesus. What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said we should give up our lives for our friends. Jesus said we should love our enemies, put our swords away. We shouldn't fight. Jesus said we should care for the weak and the sick and the dying, even those outside of our tribe. And Jesus also said, this is radically evolutionistically, Jesus said we should also consider not getting married. From a certain evolutionary perspective, this would be terrible for the propagation of the species. And yet we all have this sense, this sense deep down in us, that Jesus was really onto something, that Jesus was doing it right and Genghis Khan was doing it wrong. Basically, if evolution were to explain morality, we would all value different things. We would value power, destruction, and rape, and polygamy. We would have no problem eliminating weaker members of our species. Now, ironically, and to be sure, we do all those things. But there is a sense we know that we shouldn't. So if evolution isn't a good explanation for morality, what's the alternative? Well, maybe it's social conditioning. Social conditioning suggests that it is our social environment, not our genes, not God, which define right and wrong. Our world tells us what is ethical. This is why what's right in one culture is oftentimes different from what's right or wrong in another culture. Uh, What's right and wrong is defined by who's in power above us and how the people immediately around us behave. In a way, this has always been true, right? So much of how we understand right and wrong is determined by the culture and the world in which we live. I mean, if you've ever wondered how so many millions of American citizens could have thought slavery was okay, social conditioning was why. 
everybody just thought it was right, including the people in charge who wrote the laws and the Constitution. The rest of us just followed in. There's a scene uh, from the movie 42, for example, a movie about Jackie Robinson, who played for the Dodgers, uh, which kind of illustrates this. Uh, in, in the movie, uh, the father and son, this father and son go to watch Jackie Robinson play baseball. And uh, they're having a great time until Jackie Robinson steps up to the plate. And uh, the entire crowd stands up and starts taunting him, ridiculing him, calling him the N-word. Little boy stands up, is confused, like, what's happening? And just kind of falls in. Starts screaming the most terrible things that you never want anybody to say, let alone a little boy. That's social conditioning. Now, there is a certain amount of truth to this theory. It just happens. We're all influenced by the moral climate around us. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of the things that we think are right and wrong, we think are right and wrong because the world tells us that they're right and wrong, not necessarily because God God does. I mean, take marriage and sexuality, for example. These days, the world is telling us that certain sexual identities or marriage relationships are perfectly okay. The world's telling us there's nothing wrong, for example, living and sleeping together before marriage, divorcing with no cause, everybody's doing it. Nobody waits to have sex or move in before marriage anymore. A lot of people are just changing their minds about what's right or wrong because of how the world is telling us how to believe about marriage and sexuality. This is just how it works. This is how we make moral decisions, sometimes without even knowing it, by listening to what people tell us is right or wrong. I mean, commercials, TV shows are telling us what is right and wrong, and we believe it because we are socially conditioned people. So clearly there's some truth to this theory. But when it comes to explaining the reality of moral facts, and that's the question, right? When it comes to explaining the morality of moral facts, there are problems with this theory. First, the social conditioning theory does not explain why very young babies prefer good guys. So much of morality seems to come from within and start very early. It's innate. Babies start making moral decisions before their parents can even get to them. And also, however powerful social conditioning might be, it can't really explain some of the timeless moral beliefs that we all possess. I mean, can you ever imagine being socially conditioned by the world to think, for example, that it's okay to kill your dad and violate your mom? Can you ever imagine the world persuading you that it's okay to kill your dad and violate your mother? Can you ever think the world could tell you that's okay? No! Absolutely not! There's something inside everybody that says doing so would be fundamentally wrong. All that to say, evolution and social conditioning have major problems when it comes to explaining morality. On top of that, there are also some really undesirable implications if either of these theories are true. What I mean is, if evolution or social conditioning are the reasons we have a sense of moral obligation and God is not responsible, what might it mean? It would mean that objective morality doesn't even exist. There are no moral facts. It would mean that objective morality is only an illusion. Despite what we think, nothing is objectively wrong in any sort of philosophical way. 
Morality could look very different based on how we evolved or what culture told us. Let me give you an example of this. In his book, Unbelievable, author Justin Brierley, who runs a fantastic podcast I listen to, uh, he tells the story of interviewing Richard Dawkins about this topic. Now, Richard Dawkins is the world's most famous atheist. Uh, Dawkins believes that all morality is the result of evolution. And it is therefore arbitrary. Evolution is, according to theory, an unguided process. So according to Dawkins, for example, our belief that rape is wrong is just an accident. It's just an accident of evolution. So just like we evolved to have five fingers because five fingers proved useful, we evolved to think rape is wrong because it was advantageous and useful to our species to not rape people. However, Dawkins suggests that we could have evolved differently to think that rape is not wrong. We could have evolved to think that rape, that child abuse is okay for that, for that matter. As a matter of fact, a lot of people around the world think that, think that, think that rape is not fundamentally wrong and that child abuse is okay. But most good people know that rape is wrong because rape is wrong. Objectively, morally, not because we evolved to think that it's wrong. If they're being honest with themselves, atheists and skeptics have to acknowledge this. They have to acknowledge that true objective morality doesn't exist according to the explanations they offer. I mean, if they're right, there's not even a category of things that we could call evil. Not even the Holocaust is fundamentally evil. There's essentially nothing wrong with declaring war on innocent civilians or herding them up like sheep and in uh, war camps. But again, we know someplace deep down, we know these things are really wrong. My point here is that evolution and social conditioning fail to explain morality and in fact cause more problems, which brings us back to the God explanation. If evolution and social conditioning don't explain morality, does God do a better job? Well... This depends on who you talk to. (laughs) Skeptics are constantly cautioning Christians not to make God of the gaps arguments. We've talked about God of the gaps argument. A God of the gap argument is when we have a gap in our knowledge of the natural world. Like there's something about the natural world we don't understand. Oh, why is that storm system passing through? Oh, God must be mad. Uh, How did Jesus raise from the dead? Not sure. God must have done it. Why do we feel this sense of right and wrong? Oh, I don't know. God must cause that. Uh, skeptics would tell us to hold our horses. Uh, we, we don't know these things. Science will sort of reveal possible explanations. And it's a fair point. But we've been studying these things for thousands of years. And of the available theories, evolution, social conditioning, or God, what's the most plausible explanation for our sense of moral obligation? What's the most likely? To me... The most likely explanation is that right and wrong exist in the mind of the creator who called us into existence. The same creator who built the universe according to certain physical laws also built it according to certain moral laws. Now we can break those laws because God gave us freedom, but that doesn't mean that those laws don't exist. It's kind of like speed limit signs. You know, you break them, but they're still there. Basically, here is the moral argument, restated in as simple a way as I can. The moral argument is that the existence of moral laws in the universe is strong evidence for a moral law giver. 
I mean, if you're out hiking in the woods and you found like a moral guidebook, you would wonder, huh, who wrote those? And my point this morning is that we kind of have that. We have sense of the existence of a moral law book, rule book, which is best explained by a moral law giver. Now, that's the moral argument. So what? <laughs> uh, what do we do with all this very interesting but potentially irrelevant stuff? Well, it's really not irrelevant. I think there's a lot of implications to the moral argument, even in how we live our lives. Uh, so with the time I have left, let me give you a couple quick things to do with this material. Here are your applications for the morning. Class, here are your assignments. Talk it up and live it out. First, talk it up. Let me talk more evangelistically. Like I said, one of the reasons we're doing this series is so that we have things to talk about with non-believers. And this is a really good topic to have in your pocket. The question that we can talk about with our skeptical friends is why we think certain things are right or wrong. Many people believe in right and wrong, but it raises the question, why? That's a question we should raise. Why is that, why is that right? Why is that wrong? And when you say right and wrong, what do you mean? Do you mean like right or wrong like subjectively, like it feels bad? Or do you mean right or wrong objectively, like it is wrong, like 2 plus 2 equals 5? That's an important question we can talk about with people. To be sure, though, it's not one that everybody wants to discuss. I mean, deep down, we know that this question is a religious one, and a lot of people just want to avoid that. In his book, uh, Making Sense of God, for example, Pastor Tim Keller up in New York, he describes a conversation that he was having with a school teacher who went to his church, and the school teacher was given character curriculum for her students. So the curriculum included lessons on selflessness, justice, honesty. But the teacher explained to Pastor Keller that she was given very strict instructions by the administrators to not answer the why question. So if students asked why this was right, why this was wrong, she couldn't say anything. She couldn't say anything because the administrators knew that questions of morality are religious ones. We have no reason to think that honesty and generosity are fundamentally wrong apart from some moral law of the universe. The, the, the school district wanted to teach character education, but they wanted to teach their own version of character education without having ra any rationalization for it. So they just told her, teach what is right, teach what is wrong without any explanation, teach justice, teach compassion, teach inclusiveness, but without any explanation. First of all, a couple problems with this. First of all, that's a terrible way to teach children. Just do this. Why should I do that? Just do it. That's a terrible way to teach kids. That's social conditioning. Frankly, that's ethical bullying. But also, and this is my point, ethics inevitably leads to the question of God. If you have friends who are justifiably enraged about the war in Ukraine, talk to them about it, ask them why. If you have friends who are rightfully bothered by the injustice of discrimination or racism, ask them why. 
If you have friends who believe in good and bad, ask them why. You're being given an opportunity to talk with them about why things are right and wrong and why God is, in our opinion, the most likely explanation for the sense they feel that right and wrong exist in the world. God is the most likely explanation for the sense of outrage that they feel at the world as they look at it. The reason they believe in a moral law, which most people do, is because they were created by a moral law giver. So that's application number one. Talk it up. But what about more personally? What about the moral argument? What does the moral argument mean for us on a more personal level? Well, this leads to application number two. I'll leave you with this. Live it out. Talk it up, live it out. Here's what I mean. If there are moral laws to the universe... What should we do? We should live by them. We should live that way. Just like there are physical laws to the universe that we must abide by, there are moral laws to the universe that we should abide by too. The the difference here though is that we're actually being given a choice to decide how we want to live our lives. I mean, we can't decide that we're going to, you know, disobey the laws of gravity. I reject gravity today. I'm not going to work with you anymore. That's not going to work. But we're being given a choice about ethics, about morals. We get to decide how we want to live. And like we've talked about, we all make these moral decisions, but we make them based on different reasons. Uh, we, We can make moral decisions according to evolution. We can make moral decisions according to social conditioning. Or we can make decisions according to God's moral law. And what I want to suggest to you is that many of us live according to evolution or social conditioning more than we think. How do I mean? Well, as far as evolution, many of us are living like Genghis Khan. I don't mean we're out there spreading our seed. But we kind of are. Evolution has primed us to use power to get our way. To eliminate the competition, we do that. We use violent words and relationships to get our way. We, we take what we want, even if it's not ours. We have sex with lots of people we're not married to. We ignore the needs of the weak. We follow our genes. That's evolution. That's living, not like sons of God, that's living like animals. In so many ways, we all live like Genghis Khan. And just the same, we make moral decisions according to social conditioning. How so? Well, we let the world tell us what is right and wrong. We fudge our taxes because, you know, everybody does it. It's fine. We live with our boyfriend or girlfriend because, you know, everybody does that. That's just kind of how people do it these days. We watch movies and TV shows that aren't good for us because, oh, everybody's watching this. We buy stuff we don't need to. We go into debt because the world tells you, oh, that's how you got to live your life. We let the world and the media tell us what is right and how to live. We all live like this. We all live according to evolution or social conditioning. But as Christians, as Christians, we're called to a higher moral law. What's the moral law? It's the only law that even really exists. Jesus is pretty clear about what the moral law is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else descends from that. The moral law is the law of love for God and for neighbor. The moral law is the law of sexual purity, holy living. It's the law of service to enemies. It's the law of stewardship. It's the law of humility. These are the moral laws of the universe. This is how Jesus lived his life. And it's what made his example so remarkable. Jesus didn't live according to evolution. And he didn't let other people tell him what was right and wrong. He followed God's moral law. And 
biblical terms, Jesus lived a life of righteousness. That's the Bible word for the moral law, law, righteousness. And he was rewarded for it, as we will all be. The reward for living according to God's moral law is that we will live forever. As the book of Proverbs says, in the way of righteousness, there's life. Along that path is immortality. That's what's available to us who live according to God's moral law. The problem here, though, and you know the problem here, the problem here is that we don't. The problem here is that we can't. We can't escape evolution. We can't escape social conditioning. And we're blind about it. We think we're so self-righteous, but we don't realize how enslaved to these forces we are and how hypocritical we are. And frankly, this is one of the things that's so infuriating about this Ukraine moment. I mean, there's so many things that are infuriating about the Ukraine moment, the fact that we even have a moment. But one of the things that's so infuriating about this Ukraine moment is, is this. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad that much of the world has rallied together to oppose Putin. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm grateful for the solidarity. But I'm also deeply bothered by the hypocrisy of the world at this moment. Putin is only doing what we as a species have been doing forever. Putin is only doing what we do in our lives every day. We take what we want, we ignore the weak, we fracture relationships, we use violent words, we betray our neighbor. In many ways, Putin is giving us an excuse. He's giving us an excuse to ignore the sin in our own hearts. You know the truth? You know the truth? You want to hear the truth this morning? Come here for the truth? Here's the truth. We are all Vladimir Putin. We're all Genghis Khan. Or at least we were. But in Christ, God has made us something better. This is what God did. In Christ, God gave us his righteousness. We couldn't obey the moral law. We had no chance. We're enslaved to our evolutionary social conditioning impulses. And so we have lost the chance to live forever. But God didn't want that. God wants us to live forever. And here's what he did. He credits Jesus' obedience to the moral law to our account. He gives Jesus' righteousness to us. As Paul writes to the Romans, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul is saying that Christ is the embodiment of the moral law of the universe. Jesus embodied God's moral law and by faith in him, by trusting in him, by following him, God gives Jesus' obedience to us and Jesus' reward. Because of how Christ lived his life, we can live forever despite how we've lived ours. That's what it means to be figurement. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's my invitation to you this morning. Maybe you are living like an evolved animal. You're just letting your genes, you're just letting your instincts tell you how to live. Or maybe you're living like a socially conditioned sheep. You're just letting the world lead you around. God's calling you to something higher this morning, something truer. God's calling you to righteousness, to love, but it's not something you can earn on your own. God wants to give it to you through faith in Jesus Christ, and God wants to give you his spirit so you have the strength to live according to the moral law that God has built into the universe. We couldn't on our own, but in Christ we can. So that's the moral argument. Our sense of a moral law suggests a moral law giver, and what do we do? We talk it up. We live it out. Band's going to come up, lead us in a song, after which I'll come back up and we'll pray.